Section 22 of History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Katie Francesca. History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890 by Alexander and George Sutherland. Victoria, 1855 to 1890. 1. Responsible Government. In 1855, when each of the colonies was engaged in framing for itself its own form of government, Victoria, like all the others, chose the English system of two houses of legislature. At first, it was resolved that the lower house, called the Legislative Assembly, should consist of only 60 members, but by subsequent additions, the number has been increased to 86. In 1857, the right of voting was conferred upon every man who had resided a sufficient length of time in the colony. With regard to the upper house, Victoria found the same difficulty as had been experienced in New South Wales, but instead of introducing the system of nomination by the government, it decided that its legislative council should be elected by the people. In order, however, that this body might not be identical in form and opinion with the lower house, it was arranged that no one should be eligible for election to it who did not possess at least £5,000 worth of real property, and that the privilege of voting should be confined to the wealthier part of the community. Along with this new constitution, responsible government was introduced, and Mr Haynes, being sent for by the governor, formed the first ministry. Before the close of the year, the first contest under the new system took place. Mr Nicholson, a member of the assembly, moved that the voting for elections should in future be carried on in secret by means of the ballot box, so that every man might be able to give his opinion, undeterred by any external pressure, such as the fear of displeasing his employer or of disobliging a friend. The government of Mr Haynes refused its assent to this proposal, which was nevertheless carried by the Assembly. Now, the system of responsible government required that, in such a case, Mr Haynes and his fellow ministers, being averse to such a law and declining to carry it out, should resign and leave the government to those who were willing and able to inaugurate the newly appointed system. Accordingly, they gave in their resignations, and the governor asked Mr Nicholson to form a new ministry. But, though many members had voted for his proposal, they were not prepared to follow him as their leader he could obtain very few associates and was thus unable to form a ministry, so that there appeared some likelihood of a total failure of responsible government before it had been six months in existence. In the midst of this crisis, Sir Charles Hotham was taken ill. He had been present at a prolonged ceremony, the opening of the first gasworks in Melbourne, and a cold south wind had given him a dangerous chill. He lay for a day or two in great danger, but the crisis seemed past and he had begun to recover, 
when news was brought to him of Mr. Nicholson's failure. He lay brooding over these difficulties, which pressed so much upon his mind that he was unable to rally, and on the last day of the year, 1855, he died. This was a great shock to the colonists, who had learned highly to respect him. The vacant position was for a year assumed by Major General MacArthur, who invited Mr. Haynes and his ministry to return. They did so, and the course of responsible government began again from the beginning. At the end of 1856, another governor, Sir Henry Barclay, arrived, and during the seven years of his stay, the new system worked smoothly enough, the only peculiarity being the rapid changes in the government. Some of the ministries lasted only six weeks, and very few protracted their existence to a year. 2. The Deadlock Sir Henry Barclay left the colony in 1863, and his place was immediately filled by Sir Charles Darling, nephew of Sir Ralph Darling, who, forty years before, had been Governor of New South Wales. Sir Charles was destined to troublous times, for he had not been long in the colony ere a most vexatious hitch took place in the working of constitutional government. It arose out of a straggle with regard to what is called protection to native industry. The colony was filled with vigorous and enterprising men who had come to it for the purpose of digging for gold. For four or five years, gold digging had been on the average a fairly remunerative occupation. But when all the surface gold had been gathered and it became necessary to dig shafts many hundreds of feet into the earth, and even then, in many cases, only to get quartz, from which the gold had to be extracted by crushing and careful washing, then the ordinary worker who had no command of capital had to take employment with the wealthier people who could afford to sink shafts and wait for years before the gold appeared. These men, therefore, had to take small wages for toiling at a most laborious occupation. But most of them had learnt trades of some sort in Europe, and the idea sprang up that if the colony prevented boots from coming into it from outside, there would be plenty of work for the bootmakers. If it stopped the importation of engines, there would no longer be any reason why engineers should work like navvies at the bottom of gold mines. They would be wanted to make the engines of the colony. After a long agitation, therefore, James McCulloch, the Premier of the colony, in 1864, brought a bill into the Victorian Legislative Assembly, according to which taxes were to be placed on all goods coming into the colony, if they were of a sort that might be made within the colony. McCulloch proposed to make this change because it was ardently desired by the working men of the colony, and these could, by their votes, control the action of the Legislative Assembly. But the Upper House, called the Legislative Council, composed of wealthy men, who had been elected by the wealthier part of the community, thought, after careful decision, that any such plan would ruin the commerce of the colony without much benefiting its industries. They therefore rejected the proposed bill. McCulloch tried to persuade them to pass it, but they were obstinate. He then resorted to a trick 
which in itself objectionable, but which is perhaps excusable when the great body of the people wish a certain thing, and a small body, like the legislative council, are resolved to thwart them. It is part of our constitutional law that all bills dealing with money matters must be prepared in the lower house. The upper house can then accept them or reject them as they stand, but it is not allowed to alter them. Now, once a year Parliament has to pass a bill, called the Appropriation Act, by which authority is given to the government to spend the public money in the various ways that Parliament directs. In 1865, McCulloch put the whole of the Protective Tariff Bill into the Appropriation Act as if it were a part of that Act, though really it had nothing to do with it. The Legislative Assembly passed the Appropriation Act with this insertion. The Legislative Council now found itself in a most unlucky position. If it passed the Appropriation Act, it would also pass the Protective Tariff Bill which it detested. But, if it rejected the Appropriation Act, then the government would have no authority to pay away any money, and so all the officers of the state, the civil servants and the policemen, the teachers, the gaolers, the surveyors and the tide waiters would all have to go on for a year without any salaries. There was no middle course open, for the council could not alter the Appropriation Act and then pass it. Whether was it to pass the Act and make the protective tariff the law of the land, or reject it, and run the risk of making a number of innocent people starve? It chose the latter alternative and threw out the bill. The whole country became immensely excited and seemed like one debating club, where men argued warmly either for or against the council. Matters were becoming serious when the Ministry discovered an ingenious device for obtaining money. According to British law, if a man is unable to obtain from the government what it owes him, he sues for it in the Supreme Court, and then, if this court decides in his favour, it orders the money to be paid, quite independently of any Appropriation Act, out of the sums that may be lying in the Treasury. In their emergency, the Ministry applied to the banks for a loan of money. Five of them refused, but the sixth agreed to lend £40,000. With this, the government servants were paid, and then the bank demanded its money from the government, but the government had no authority from Parliament to pay any money, and could not legally pay it. The bank then brought its action at law. The Supreme Court gave its order and the money was paid to the bank out of the Treasury. Thus, a means had been discovered of obtaining all the money that was required without asking the consent of Parliament. Throughout the year 1865, the salaries of officers were obtained in this way, but in 1866, the Upper House, seeing that it was being beaten, offered to hold a conference. Each house made concessions to the other, the tariff bill was passed, with some alterations, the appropriation bill was then agreed to in the ordinary way, and the deadlock came to an end. 3. The Darling Grant But, in its train, other troubles followed. 
for the English authorities were displeased with Sir Charles Darling for allowing the government to act as it did. They showed how he might have prevented it, and, to mark their dissatisfaction, they recalled him in 1866. He bitterly complained of this harsh treatment, and the Assembly, regarding him as, in some measure, a martyr to the cause of the people, determined to recompense him for his loss of salary. In the Appropriation Act of 1867, they therefore passed a grant of £20,000 to Lady Darling, intending it for the use of her husband. The Upper House owed no debt of gratitude to Sir Charles, and accordingly it once more threw out the Appropriation Bill. Again, there was the same bitter dispute, and again the public creditors were obliged to sue for their money in the Supreme Court. In a short time, 4,500 such pretended actions were laid, the government making no defence, and the order being given in each case that the money should be paid. In 1866, the new governor, Viscount Canterbury, arrived. But the struggle was still continued, till, in 1868, Sir Charles Darling informed McCulloch that Lady Darling would decline to receive the money, as he was receiving instead £5,000 as arrears of salary and a lucrative position in England. The Upper House then passed the Appropriation Bill, and the contest came to an end. 4. Payment of Members But they had other things to quarrel about. The working men of the colony thought that they never would get fair treatment in regards to the laws until working men themselves in Parliament. But that could not be, so long as they had to leave their trades and spend their time in making laws while getting nothing for it. Hence they were resolved on having all members of Parliament paid, and they elected persons to the lower house who were in favour of that principle. But the better-off people sent persons into the upper house who were against it. Thus, for twenty years a struggle took place. But in the end, the working men carried their point, and it was settled that every member of Parliament should receive £300 a year. The two houses also quarrelled about the manner in which the land was to be sold, the lower house being anxious to put it into the hands of industrious people who were likely to work on it as farmers, even though they could pay very little for it. The upper house preferring that it should be sold to the people who offered the most money for it. On this, and other questions in dispute, the lower house gained the victory. 5. Exhibitions It was not till the year 1880 that all these contentions were set at rest, but from that time, the colony passed into a period of peace, during which it made the most astonishing progress in all directions. That progress was indicated in a most decided way by the exhibitions held in the colony. It had from time to time in previous years held intercolonial exhibitions at which all the colonies had met in friendly competition. But in 1880, and again in 1888, Victoria invited all the world to exhibit their products at her show. A magnificent building was erected in one of the parks of Melbourne, and behind it were placed acres of temporary wooden erections, 
and the hall was filled with 20 acres of exhibits. A similar show, held in 1888, was much larger, and helped by its fine collection of pictures, its grand displays of machinery, its educational courts, its fine orchestral music, and so on, in a hundred ways to stimulate and develop the minds of the people. During recent years, Victoria has been very busy in social legislation. While enjoying peace under the direction of a coalition government, with Mr Duncan Gillies and Mr Alfred Deacon at its head, the colony has tried experiments in regulating the liquor traffic, in closing shops at an early hour, in irrigating the waterless plains of the northwest, and in educating farmers and others into the most approved methods of managing their businesses. What is to be the eventual result? No one can as yet very definitely prophesy. But the eyes of many thoughtful persons throughout the world are at present turned to Victoria to see how those schemes are working which have been so zealously undertaken for the good of the people. Up till 1890, the progress of the colony was astonishing. Its central half forms a network of railways. Its agriculture and its trades have doubled themselves every few years. And though a period of restless activity and progress was in 1890, followed by a time of severe depression, the community, like all the other Australian colonies, has great times of prosperity in store for it. End of section 22. Recording by Katie Francesca.